The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Your headlines this hour. Tesla beats on the top line, but misses revenue forecasts, driving the stock down in extended trade. The electric vehicle maker CEO Elon Musk giving a recession warning, but still talking up the company's prospects on the earnings call. Not the opinion that we can far exceed Apple's current market cap. In fact, I see a potential path for Tesla to be worth more than Apple and Saudi Aramco combined. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss's premiership teeters on the brink after Home Secretary Suella Braverman steps down with a withering parting shot at the government's credibility. Uh, Wall Street snapping a two-day winning streak as the 10-year yield hits its highest level since 2008. The weakness spilling over into the Asian session with the BOJ stepping in to put a floor under bond prices. Plus, ABB posting a third quarter jump in orders and revenue whilst indicating it expects to hit its margin targets for 2023, a year early. And we will be speaking to the Swiss-Swedish industrial giant's CEO, Bjorn Rosengren, this hour. So welcome to the programme, everybody. Um, uh, Despite all of the uh, shenanigans going on here in the UK around the politics this morning and the concerns about whether the government could fall in the next hour and so on and so forth. Good morning, by the way. Good morning. How are you? I'm not bad. Did you uh, stay awake for all of the events of last night? Well, pretty much. I think I saw it to its end, although there was always the potential that more things could happen overnight. Just when you think it can't get more farcical, I know we've got a little bit of analysis on it later on as well, but, but... Extra- I, I can't. There's so many bullet points of firsts and worsts. Yes. I don't know. The, the, the PM not turning up to her own confidence vote that then wasn't a confidence vote, but Indeed. was a confidence vote. Indeed. And, well, there are lots of and her ministers uh, being accused of pushing people into various lobbies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so many, so many twists and turns in this story. It's a developing story, obviously. And we're going to get to it in some detail, and we'll take you down to Downing Street. But Tesla earnings. An awful lot to talk about when it comes to Tesla as well. The shares fell in extended trade. The EV maker reported a miss on revenue for the third quarter. Sales in short of Wall Street estimates despite hitting a record high. Earnings per share topping expectations just. Well, the CEO told analysts on the earnings call that the company would miss its vehicle delivery targets this year, but sought to reassure investors that demand is still strong. I can't emphasize enough, we, we have excellent demand uh, for Q4, and we expect to sell uh, every car that we make for as, as far into the future as we can see. Well, in a wide-ranging call, Musk floated the idea of a potential $5 to $10 billion share buyback pending board approval. He also speculated that Tesla's market value, currently around $700 billion, could one day exceed the combined capitalization of Apple and Saudi Aramco combined. It's always good to dream. Nearly $4.4 trillion 
as of Wednesday's close. Arjun is with us around, around the set. Arjun is our tech reporter here. Look, I jest, Arjun, obviously, but $4.4 trillion looks an awful long way away from $700 billion at this point. Round it up for us. What do these numbers mean? Well, look, it, I think the, the fact that Musk was ultra bullish, giving his classic, uh, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to be this uh, big, but seeing the share price dip, I think, shows you that investor patience in this current environment is certainly wearing thin a bit. Uh, the results were, were fine, you know, earnings beat. Uh, revenue was expected uh, to come in sort of slightly short just because we knew deliveries uh, for the third quarter came short quite substantially um, from what the market had estimated as well. Um, so it was a fine report, but clearly fine's not going to cut it for a company like this with such a huge valuation, with such high expectations as well. You heard Musk talk about uh, going into this. The question was, is this a demand issue? Is this a supply issue? Why was there that miss? Clearly, Musk saying this was really very much um, <clears throat> something to do with logistics. Demand was fine, he said. He said, we're going to have an epic Q4, excellent demand in Q4. So they said they're going to sell every car that they managed to produce. So that clearly says that this is a, something else going on in the background. But for Musk, it, it, it remains fine in terms of demand. But clearly, this was not enough for the market but, in this environment. But that, that, oh, you've got a bite you want to get to first. Have you got, we got some sound? Should we let, let's, oh, sorry, we talk about Twitter. Well, no, I want to talk about Tesla <laughs> and Twitter, if you like. Uh, let's get to the sound that, uh, from uh, Elon Musk, first of all. I'm excited about the Twitter situation because I obviously know that part incredibly well. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an asset that has um, been uh, sort of languished uh, for a long time, but has incredible potential. Um, Although, obviously, um, myself and the other investors are obviously overpaying for Twitter right now, um, the long-term potential for Twitter, in my view, is an order of magnitude greater than its current value. All right, okay. So we're going to have to do this backwards now because that was about Twitter. Go on. So what's, what, what would you glean from what he just said about well, Twitter? Well, we heard a bit on, on the tape. He admitted, finally, Steve, he's vindicated your point that he was overpaying, overpaying for Twitter, he said, but did say he had, it had great potential. Look, we know Twitter has been struggling big time, growing users, managing to monetize their users, grow that revenue. That's been a big struggle. What is Elon Musk going to bring to the table? We don't learn anything new there. X. He's uh, going to bring X. X He's going to bring the super app, the WeChat-like potential yeah. app, which probably might not work in these uh, markets outside of Why won't it China. Work? It's difficult, Dif different environment. You look at uh, a product like WeChat in China. That is a company that built you know, a product that's been built over the years in, in the and it's managed to sort of almost monopolize so many parts of the market It's the de facto messaging app in China. It's almost the de facto payments app in China. We don't have that kind of environment here. There's so much more competition, lots of different competing products and be hard for one company to just say we're going to do everything. Also, culturally, the usage is very different as well. Um, this is a mindset in China using WeChat for everything that's been built up over a number of years. Um, here we're used to many different products, competing operating systems such as Apple and Android uh, and various other products that I think it'd be very difficult to get off a WeChat-like product here in Europe or, or in the US as well. That's going to make it very difficult. I mean, there is something quite ubiquitous about WeChat in China Damn. that you're not going to replicate, it seems to me, with Twitter. Um, but there is, there is obviously an opportunity to turn this into something else. And I wonder if, if they should be looking at maybe education as a delivery mechanism for education. I mean, given the silo that they service, 
I mean, it's, it's demographically, it is a small community that is on Twitter, I think, that likes to self-select and think of itself as quite, quite important when it comes to um, talking about the important issues of the day. Of course, you've, you've, you've got the same people on there who, who just like to trash talk as well and be rude to people. But just, just excluding those for a moment, um, there's a lot of interesting comment and engagement that goes on on Twitter. The problem with the current management is they haven't monetized that. But I wonder if you start th thinking about using it as a tool to, 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 to Im improves, improve people's knowledge, pitch educational products at them. Uh, ad funding, it seems to me, is just not the answer when you have a product with this demographic. No, absolutely, Jeff. And I think, you know, they're trialing now things to do with subscription uh, with Twitter Blue as well. And that's obviously a difficult go as well because you're asking people to pay for this product, which has sort of been free for such a long time. What are you bringing with the subscription service? Education certainly an interesting one. And we have seen Twitter over the years experiment with so many different areas, video and sports and, and, and whatever. But clearly it is a platform where people do like to be engaged, do like to debate. There's one area, but monetization. How okay. do you make money off of that? Right, so, so we've done, we done Twitter for the moment. I want to go back to Tesla, sorry. I've done this all uh, wrong way around, but I didn't realize the sound was about Twitter. So look, here we go. Um, I, I hear his aspirations. What he wants to be, what does he think he can be? Apple plus Saudi Aramco. It's quite an aspiration. And you know, nothing wrong with having ambition. If anyone can achieve ambition, it's someone like Elon Musk. But, but this is a company which makes cars, right? I know, shocking, but, it, but it's, it's a technology company that makes cars rather than an OEM that has technology. And I think that's the, the, the big subtle difference between Tesla and every other single major car maker out there. But the OEMs are now learning from Tesla and saying, right, we need to be technology companies and not OEMs. And they are slowly transforming their product range, whether they're BMW, whether they're Daimler, whether they're Volkswagen, whether they're Ford, GM, whatever. So the latter all trade at a mid to high single digit forward PE. The former Tesla trades at 38 times forward. As they merge to become more similar over time, which the OEMs have to do to become more like Tesla, Tesla will also become more like them by nature because they have lost their first mover advantage, they will have lost their USP and they will learn, they will assimilate from what Tesla's doing and become better and better. So at the moment Tesla trades at 38 times forward, the OEMs trade between five and 10 times forward. And that includes the likes of Volkswagen, which still has a mark of superior cars. The only one that doesn't is Ferrari, which trades at 33 times forward, which we've always said is an outlier because of its unique mark and unique position in petrol heads um, uh, affections as well. So why does Tesla trade at a premium to even Ferrari? is my question, and, and trade at a premium to all the others by such a large margin. So I appreciate there's some brilliant stuff in the Tesla numbers. There was solid net income. There was positive free cash flow. There is a very strong margin as well. But maybe we've had, because of all the logistics problems he's mentioned as well, and some of the, the, the problems that the OEMs have had all along, that he's beginning to experience some of those problems. So there is no doubt that these cars uh, or, or the group should trade at a premium than the others at the moment. But that has to erode over time, surely. Yes, yeah, certainly, Stephen. I think why it's trading at a premium is precisely what you said. This is a technology company doing uh, the automotive business. And clearly, the first mover advantage here is why it trades at such a premium. It is ahead. Miles ahead Miles of the ahead. competition. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of uh, the technology that it's developing, in terms of the investments it's making, when eventually we get to perhaps more autonomous styles of driving, it's way ahead of any of the uh, traditional OEMs at this point. Uh, the other point here is brand. Uh, and I, I often like to compare Tesla to, to Apple in many senses because 
there's loads of smartphone players on the market. There are tons of smartphone players. And, and you can argue, well, all the phones, they all look the same as well. But Apple, what they've managed to do is create a very, very strong and sticky brand, one that they lock users into their ecosystem with. And if you look uh, at the Tesla model, or at least how Elon Musk uh, explains it, is that, yes, we're selling cars. We're also selling all these services around it, whether it's uh, Tesla's full self-driving beta, whether it's some of those other um, you know, features around it. That's really what he's aiming for. But yes, you're right, Steve. I think over time, as the automakers catch up and, and become more similar in terms of technology, it will become come down to this difference. What is the stickiness of the brand? What is the allure of Elon Musk? We know Tesla fans are very, very passionate uh, in the defense of Musk very often, but also, how does the technology around some of these future uh, technologies when it comes to so semi-autonomous driving, a premium. It's just a question of uh, are we at a level where it can only go one way, that premium over the other automakers? And I suppose that depends as much on his company as their companies and whether they can revolutionise their production lines. Well, I mean, you know, what you're describing is a, is a business that's very much like Apple, that, that is um, Musk is building a narrative around a vision and... I think the important point you made is there's enormous potential for spin-off spin -off technologies from the work that has been done with Tesla. I mean, uh, uh, the, the batteries potentially have um, domestic energy storage usage for small communities and homes. The um, uh, technology around guidance, the AI development around that has all sorts of real world potential applications where humans are involved at the moment but could be replaced in a safer way. You know, think of farming, think of engineering, think of um, oil rigs, oil and gas operations and so on and so forth. So I think you can understand it. I think the, the problem is for, for us with, with Tesla is it, it seems to sort of lurch from one quarter to the next and you're never quite sure um, whether they're going to have supply chain problems as the reason they didn't make the quarter, whether they're going to have um, Musk's own distraction as a reason for not making the quarter, or whether there's going to be something else in there. Um, geopolitical issues with China, manufacturing problems, battery problems, and so on and so forth. So I understand you know, some of the concern as you look at the, the way the, the, the charts performed here, because let's face it, generally, barring what's happened with Dieselgate, you've had a much reliable, much more reliable delivery approach from the likes of VW and BMW and the traditional yeah, OEMs. Yeah, it's not helpful for investors in this current environment as well, where they are on edge, right? Where there's yeah. uh, concern about some of these growth stocks as well. Um, and China, you mentioned, I think is still a big risk yeah. for yeah, Tesla in the absolutely. current political Arjun, environment. We've got to say goodbye, but thank you very much indeed. We'll see you a bit later on. And what did they close at? They were 208 or something, was it after hours? Let's have a quick look at the after hours because I, I know Cathy would be interested. She's probably picking up a few more. 208. Where did she buy them on? October the 3rd, October the 4th? I think the stock was 240 or 250, but you know, long term <coughs> investor. Uh, let's move on. Uh, US markets uh, fell. It was all about the earnings season. Well, it was about the data as well. And, and the Beige Book, what did you get from the Beige Book? I don't think you learned anything you didn't already perhaps know from the Beige Book as well. Uh, what has it said? Expanding modestly on net. Uh, and, and as we flagged, it, it wasn't uh, great foresight. I think everyone's been flagging the same, to be honest, that uh, the housing starts and permits plunged as well. So I don't think you learned anything from the data that you didn't already think or didn't already think you knew, if you know what I mean as well. But we were 
were down across the board. Uh, energy actually was a pretty strong performer yesterday. Uh, the energy sector up 2.9%, healthcare down 1.4%. Quick look at the Treasuries. The yield does continue to pick up. Um, certainly 4.15 now on that 10-year paper. Five-year, 437 and right at the very short end, 4.57 now uh, on that as well. So 75 basis points baked in for the next hike. December, what are you now? You're 50 or a 75, ladies and gentlemen? It's hard to be any less, isn't it? That's for sure, certainly on the current data. Let's have a look at the uh, Asian equity markets. Uh, Shanghai Composite trading mildly higher. That aside, we have declines across the board. The Nikkei down seven tenths. The, oh my God, I tell you, let's have a look at the, uh, the Forex actually, because there is one level which is just extraordinary. Look at that. 149.92. I mean, quite extraordinary, extraordinary levels on the dollar yen. In fact, it's so extraordinary. I'm going to hand it over to Jeff to see what the BOJ is doing about it. Yeah, absolutely. There are some moves here from the Bank of Japan. Uh, the uh, central bank has announced a $667 million emergency bond buying operation. It comes, as, uh, as you were pointing out, with the yen teetering around 150 to the dollar. That is a 32-year low. The BOJ continues to stand by its ultra-loose monetary policy, despite being the clear outlier among global central banks. Well, there is, of course, the PBOC as well, which is pursuing a more stimulative policy at this stage. But those two banks do look somewhat at odds with what we're seeing in Western central banks. Another day of disarray here in the UK. Prime Minister Liz Truss. Well, her premiership has been plunged deeper into turmoil after the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, stepped down and delivered a withering parting shot in her resignation letter. More on that in just a moment. Yeah, there was a Clinton-esque uh, part to her resignation yesterday, wasn't there, about private emails? But we can uh, perhaps discuss that with Arabile in a few moments' time. For more on Tesla's third quarter, though, report, and on Musk's prediction, I'll overtake, wait for it, Apple plus Saudi Aramco in combined market cap. Uh, you can check out Scorebox podcasts. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. I am a fighter and not a quitter. to make sure that we have economic stability. A book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. <laughs> Apparently it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? That was actually quite funny, that line. Um, believe it or not, that was the high point of the Prime Minister's day. Um, as I promised you this time yesterday, I did watch Prime Minister's Question Time and uh, she did all right. It was, you know, a solid performance without being spectacular but things just got things got a lot worse later on as well uh, so you saw the UK Prime Minister there Liz Truss and the opposition leader Sakir Starmer facing off at Prime Minister's question time amid growing speculation about the Prime Minister's future well afterwards uh, the UK Home Secretary Suella Braverman resigned after sending an official document from her personal email account to a lawmaker in what she described as a technical breach of the rules but is that really why she resigned? Did she have to resign over that or was there something else? I think it's probably pretty fair to say it was something else, wasn't it? Because the, it comes after reports of clashes between her and um, Prime Minister Truss on migration policy. 
Braverman used her resignation letter to express concerns about the government's direction, saying they had broken promises and she was worried whether they would keep their promise to reduce overall migration. Yeah, apparently I heard a, a rumour that um, she told a fringe group at the mm. conference you were at, this is Suella Bravman, mm. that she dreamt of the day a plane load of immigrants, illegal immigrants, were sent over to Rwanda. Well, what an extraordinary thing to tell the fringe group if that yeah. indeed did happen, which I understand it did. Yeah, and I think about the same time um, she managed to upset the uh, the Indian community as well. I yes, think, she did, which then potentially put on ice a trade comments. deal. Yeah. Uh, this is Suella Brahman, who then told the Prime Minister that pretending mistakes hadn't been made and hoping things would improve was not serious politics, saying, quote, I've made a mistake, I accept responsibility, I resign. Arabile um, joins us as well, because Brahman's resignation came just hours ahead of a contentious vote on fracking, with reports later denied that the government's chief whip and her deputy had resigned. Now, Arabile does join us from Downing Street after a more chaotic down Westminster. It's very technical what happened with this opposition motion for a fracking ban in the UK, but it then turned into a confidence vote, a three-line whip from the uh, government side, but then it wasn't, according to a minister at the dispatch box, and that led to the whips resigning and then being reinstated. Uh, and there was all kinds of uh, unsavoury scenes at the division as well, Arabile. Do you want to just talk us through what you see are the key points? Yeah, so those certainly are some of the key elements that have happened of late, right, Steve? It really was a tumultuous day yesterday. Even uh, the words then coming from the Prime Minister yesterday in the House of Commons was that I'm a fighter, not a quitter. So clearly uh, some references there as well. One could take those as some of the references being put forward to her situation with Suella Braverman, where uh, perhaps a fight may have ensued between the two as well over immigration and how that has come to the fore. And clearly some question marks being put forward to her leadership as Prime Minister then Liz Truss, of course a key and fervent uh, opposition uh, member in some instances to some of the policies that were put forward. Uh, Suella Braverman really saying in her uh, departing letter, her resignation letter, that she felt that there was a few contradictions being made towards that 2019 uh, mandate that was put forward and she felt like they weren't moving necessarily in the right direction. Of course Grant Shapps then being put in as Home Secretary after her resignation of what is clearly just a technical regulation with her using uh, 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 her private emails to kind of send out official documentation then uh, as well. So that has clearly played into the part. Uh, but the question marks around Liz Truss's leadership are still rearing their head, of course, now, because the question is, is a government that isn't necessarily hers forming around her? Of course, she's now had to put in Jeremy Hunt as the chancellor. On the other side, Grant Shapps now being part uh, of that government as well, who is uh, said to be a Rishi Sunak uh, backer as well then. So not necessarily all the people she wants around her. Interestingly enough, as we mentioned, that fight uh, or that uh, uh, sort of scuffle sort of happening behind the scenes as well, whether it was indeed a confidence vote or not, having seen the chief whip and the deputy then resign and then not resign as well uh, as in some of the reports, that is clearly creating some turmoil as well. And in fact, the uh, Labour MP then, Chris Bryant, even speaking about how people didn't feel free enough to actually put forward uh, how they felt. And this is exactly what he had to say. I would urge you to launch an investigation into the scenes outside the entrance to the no lobby earlier.
As you know, members are expected to be able to vote without fear or favour. And the Behaviour Code, which is agreed by the whole of the House, says that there shall never be bullying or harassment of members. I saw saw members being physically manhandled into another lobby and being bullied. If we want to stand up against bullying in this House of our staff, we have to stop bullying in this chamber as well, don't we? It's very interesting that it was right outside in Downing Street that uh, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson noted that if Dylan the dog and Larry the cat can put their differences behind them, then so too can the Conservative Party. Clearly, the Conservative Party, however, hasn't put any of their differences behind them. And in fact, it may even create a leadership vacuum, which is currently what we're seeing here. Arabile, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, Just to take it on a little bit, um, I would suggest that the only reason Liz Truss is still in power, um, my view, not CNBC's, Mm. is because, as I said pretty much all week as well, Mm. they haven't organised a unity candidate yet. Uh, I should say that the four candidates at the moment to replace Liz Truss, and it would happen sooner rather than later if people coalesce behind one view. Mm. The list is, uh, as one would expect, Penny Morden, who became third in the leadership election, Rishi Sunak, who came second in the leadership election, uh, Jeremy Hunt, who is now the Chancellor Secretary, who came last in the leadership election, mm. but is now without doubt the most powerful man in Cabinet, mm. uh, and Boris Johnson. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Boris Johnson. And the only reason that Boris Johnson isn't being put forward as the unity candidate is because memories are still very fresh about the acrimony around his departure not so long ago as well. So um, Liz Truss has lost a lot of authority uh, on the parliamentary party. That's why um, the whip was there, the three-line whip, and then it was taken away because so many MPs voted against or abstained that actually the fracking bill could have got through, which would have been a, another disaster of her policies as well. So, yeah, believe it or not, Boris Johnson is in the frame along with three others. Uh, let's talk about the Bank of England. The deputy governor responsible for financial stability at the bank, John Cunliffe, has said the central bank was not briefed by the Treasury on their plans for the so-called mini-budget. Cunliffe said officials would have been able to advise the government on the potential market reaction if they had been given the opportunity. And there you hear the sound of the gate banging long after the stable door was bolted. Cunliffe told MPs the bank would normally be told about budget measures. Normally the Treasury come and they brief us confidentially on the budget. Uh, if it's, um, they brief us on public expenditure announcements so that we can take them into account. They brief the Monetary Policy Committee normally uh, because um, while it's not fiscal policy, it's not our our responsibility, it affects the economy and we need to factor them in. And and to be fair, we had some briefing from them ex ante on the fiscal event, on the things they thought would be in, but we did not get the normal briefing that we would get uh, for a budget. When they brief us normally on the budget, we see the OBR costings. And actually, that's what we take into account in monetary policy and the like. But there were no OBR uh, costings here. So it was a different sort of event, if I can put it that way, in in many respects. John Cunliffe from the Bank of England. Well, at least things are going better across the channel. 
or are they? The French government is set to push through the 2023 budget with the use of constitutional powers to override a parliamentary vote. The Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, said it was the country's responsibility to make sure the budget is agreed. Charlotte's with us round set to tell us more about this. What's the problem with the budget, Charlotte? Well, look, you know that the government lost the absolute majority in the National Assembly. That's essentially why they can't get the budget through at the moment. And so they use this constitutional mechanism that's called the 49.3 that allows the government to push through legislation without a vote from MPs. And so on one hand, uh, it's not a very exceptional measure. It's been used almost 90 times since this measure, this uh, mechanism was created. But it's the first time it's being used for the budget. So the first time uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the budget in 30 years. So it shows that they are stuck a bit in a the corner. They can't get the majority through to push through. They've, they have debated for weeks and weeks. That's the argument of the government that they've tried. They have taken on about 120 amendments from the opposition, but they said they don't have time anymore they, to negotiate and they're pushing through with this mechanism. So of course the opposition uh, now is an uproar against this. Uh, the far left uh, coalition, the NUPES, already put a no confidence vote uh, in which, because that mechanism allows them to do that. Uh, the far right also said they will put a no confidence vote uh, forward against the government. Now, none of these are likely to topple the government because they won't vote for each other's confidence no vote. So it's not a risk just yet for the government. However, uh, it shows that this could be the way they have to govern going forward. And there's tricky uh, things tricky reforms they want to put forward, including the pension reform that they push to next year. And it means that if they can't get anyone on their side, this is how they're going to have to govern, which could be problematic, including with the public opinion. At the moment, it doesn't seem too problematic. There's also on the background all those strikes uh, and all those protests that were not as successful as the organizers wanted. So for the government, it's not too tricky just yet, but it shows that things could get much, much trickier going ahead. Yeah. OK, well, we'll watch this space. Thank you, Sean. It's uh, very interesting. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.